0: Welcome back to the Behind the Wealth Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, with Elias Randall again. Elias, uh, we got some good comments about your worst money mistake ever.
1: We did. Some entertaining uh, comments. I think people thought that was kind of funny and entertaining. And, um, you know, it's – I think – and I was talking with a friend. I think the real message of it kind of is, okay, hobbies are expensive, Right. So we established that, and someone actually said to me, "Well, your hobby, officiating football, that sounds expensive." But he goes, uh, "Roger, his fishing hobby, I guarantee that's way more expensive than." And we talked about that on the show too. So. Oh yeah, but you got you know you got to have stuff in your life other than just you know your work and your career and your family. You got to have some stuff out there that's driving you in other ways, and it costs money.
0: I watched it that is video. what it is. I watched the video like four or five times. It was great.
1: Of me admitting my mis- my biggest money yeah. mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Good.
0: But you know, I I think I, the only video I, I maybe watched more the short video that we put out there is the uh, the bloopers real Molly did a few months ago. It was a really good one too. Yeah, th- that that one was funny. We should. Well, I'm sure we'll have another one someday. So I started looking through the outline for today, and we've got a lot of different things we're going to talk about. But kind of the first um, headline here is that. And I don't know if you knew this or not. I knew this. I've known this for a long time. And I'll tell you my story about how I learned this. But women are actually better investors than men.
1: Yeah, I guess I am I think I've maybe read a couple articles about this. But did you already know this before before this outline and before we read this?
0: I knew this from personal experience.
1: Okay, talk about You haven't about heard that. this story?
0: Uh, so maybe. Remind me. My wife and I, we got married in 2002. 2003, we... Built a new house and moved into this new house. And there was a company out there that we're just starting, and we had just moved into this new house. You know, 23 years old, we don't have a whole lot of money. My wife goes, I think we should invest in this thing. I'm like, with what money? <laughs> so we clearly didn't invest in it. And guess what? I hear about it to this day. Really? I mean, it was like brand new. I don't even know what it would have been worth, but if I'd invested a 1000 bucks in 2003... It has to be some substantial amount of money today. So I've always said my wife's a better investor than I am. But if you think about, like, some of the reasons why, you know, and I'm not just going to say men are worse than women, but why do women tend to outperform the investing of men? And it really comes down to two things, in in my opinion. If you think about, like, an investment return, Elias, Um, You have an investment that makes 9%, just say the S&P 500 index. And then you have what we would call an investor return. That's what investors make. And we all see the Dalbar studies every year. Dalbar does research on investor performance versus investment returns. And there's always a pretty large discrepancy between what the investments made and what the actual investor got. And what that gap really is, it's the behavior gap. So if you, if you have a return of 9% for the investment and the individual investor makes 6 that 3% underperformance is mostly typically due to behavior. And if you think about when people start getting some confidence and thinking they know a lot about investing, they do two things. They tend to overanalyze what they have and they tend to trade more often. And I'm looking at a few studies, ones by Fidelity here. Typically, women trade less and believe they know less about investing. Basically, they're just getting out of their own way. So they're not trying to bit, overthink this.
1: It's a little bit of an over, probably an overconfidence thing, maybe thinking that you know more than what you really know.
0: We work with lots of clients, male, female. When was the last time a female client came in here and said, hey, I think we should change this? I think about some of my female clients I work with that are some of the best investors. And I can think of one right now. She's had this account for like 15 years. She's been retired. And let's just say it's half a million dollars. She takes, you know, 20 grand a year off it. She's been doing this for 15 years. Guess what it's still worth? Half a million. Well, it's more than that.
1: Yeah, it's probably grown if she's only taken 20 grand. But there's
0: two things she never comes in excited when the market's down and she never thinks we should make a bunch of changes. She literally is just sticking to like good investment behavior. You know, yeah, we rebalance and, you know, we make changes in the portfolio, but she's never coming in and saying, well, we need to sell this. I can think of another female client who thinks she knows a lot and she likes to trade a lot. Well, I got a notice the other day from our broker-dealer about underperformance, only one client. That was her. The
1: one trading the it most. It was the one trading the Isn't most. Isn't that kind of ironic or it's kind of like telling believes and it's exactly that, what this believes, data.
0: Believes suggests. she has to have individual stocks and she's driving all these investment decisions herself. She has to have individual stocks and mutual funds don't work and all these different things. Well, there's only one person who has underperformed their peers and all of the clients we work with that we've been flagged on. And it's the person Thinking they need to trade individual stocks, make the decisions themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, the yeah, really, yeah, and the person with the most trades. Their money.
0: Yeah. I don't, you know, I'll I'll help you do what I can, but it's your money. But typically, um, what we see is that females are averaging more return than male investors.
1: And I so here's kind of, and you you bring up a good point, and I now that you talk about some of the families we work with, and I do think. Because we do have a lot of female clients that most of the time, and I think it comes down to like behavioral investing versus thinking that you can outsmart the market, where I know the vast majority of our female clients um, and the, the majority of our clients take our recommendations. That's why they're working with us. But I know kind of they're more positive to the feedback on just being a successful investor and recommendations around that. So I think the behavior and I just, it's almost, an, I think it's kind of nature, a little bit or natural. I think men probably trade more because if there's something like your accounts going down, it's just, you inherently think I can do something about this.
0: Men think, we think we can, we think we can beat the game. Right. We're we, competitors. Right. And we we're can always, win. we yep. can beat it. We're better. And we can figure it out.
1: And there's times where you sit there, you're looking at your charts, looking at data, and you think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out. I can figure this out through trading. And really, and all the data shows that just being a successful investor, contributing to your accounts, reinvesting your dividends, doing all the simple stuff, it works, right? But sometimes I feel like for males, like doing the simple thing, it's well, that's not good enough. For me, it needs to be more complicated and I feel like females are more receptive to typically, we can just simplify this. Complicated doesn't mean good.
0: The other night on the radio, I don't know if it was you or Jonas who brought it up, but made a good comment that the stock market doesn't really care how hard you try. Was that you?
1: Yeah, that's something I've been sharing with people. Like, yeah, it's true. The market doesn't care how much research you do. Like you're never gonna be rewarded for effort in investing. No. Like there's no amount of effort that you can put in that's going to reward you. I mean, you're truth be told, the the best investors they all kind of do the same things: diversified portfolio, they buy good companies, hold it for a long
0: time. You know, actually, maybe what people should be looking at doing is researching investment behavior and not investments themselves to close the gap between investor return and investment return. Think I about would. it. People only focus on the numbers. No one's out there reading Daniel Crosby's book about investor behavior and the laws of wealth and all the stuff that, you know, we talk about with people. They think it's all about finding the next best investment, the shiny mutual fund, the next ETF. They pay no attention to the behavior side of this. And if they did, they'd probably be significantly better investors and they'd probably trade a heck of a lot less. And And I'm not I, I don't want people to think that I don't think you can make money trading. There's probably some people who can. The The challenge is, and even if you do it for a short period of time, the question is, is this sustainable over five, seven, 10 years? I know people. In fact, I, I, know, I know somebody personally who trades options. Two years ago, he was up 80%. Last year is down 50. Well, guess what he has? He has a two-year average of 15%. Is that good or bad? Depends on how he does this year. It could be negative. There's easier ways. I think his wife knows what the numbers are. I think she's figured out he's not making any money doing this trading. She's made comments <laughs> to me, I guess, said, hey, he'll have he'll have to show me how he's making a profit. But either way, like, you know, for a short period of time. So for a year, he had a tremendous return. Well, then last year he got killed. So he's almost back to zero. Yeah, Was it worth the time, the effort, the energy, everything that's going into it to scratch out a few bucks or do your time and better off just spend time with your family, doing more at work, getting all those different things. So I just think this is great. I think that, you know, I've known this for a long time because my wife, you know, has pretty good intuition, not that that makes her better, but she's never, ever said we should change an investment before. Just that one, you know. She doesn't wake up and say, "We need to reallocate our portfolio."
1: Yeah, and I, I, it's easy to fall into that trap because I do it too. Sometimes I'll start looking at there might be a stock, there might be like a a sector fund, or just something that's more niche than what I typically buy. And so I, I get what it feels like because you start to think, you know, what that does make sense. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. But a lot of times, I kind of rein myself in, and I start to think of it through the lens of. Would I make this recommendation to someone else? Right, like when you're managing money for other people, you you're making decisions like through their perspective. Where me, it's easy. It'd be easy for me to take excessive risk with my own money. It's my money, so it only hurts me if it doesn't work out.
0: I literally just thought about this. So this is why women are better at this. My wife never asked me what we're investing in. Do you know what she asked me?
1: How much or how what? much are we saving? How, how much are we saving? That's yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Her her question is never what do we own?
1: Yeah. Well, her, she, she her just, whole yeah. World, she probably knows that if you just save enough, it's gonna work.
0: Yeah. Her whole world is how I just want to make sure we're saving enough. She never asks what we're buying. Just are we saving enough? How much are we saving? Which, if you just think about that general question. And she inherently doesn't know what she's doing, but she's probably, you know, she doesn't spend any time on investing. So, what she does is she knows one thing if we save enough, it'll work out. She's not worried about what mutual fund or what investment or what stock we own. Just are we saving enough? Yo, know how simple that is. That's too boring. I've never even, I literally, Eli, Elias, till we did this show, I've never really thought about that question she asked. It's never what we own, it's just how much we saving. And it's brilliant, and that's why they're better. Because guess what I'm concerned about? How much we're saving, but then I'm more focused on, well, where are we putting it? In most men, it's probably, where are we putting it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think the other reason that women are probably better, inherently I don't feel like women are really risk-takers. You know, I feel like us as men, we we look for a shortcut or the silver bullet. Like, oh, instead of saving... Six thousand a month. Is there a way I could save four and get a better return? Because oh, we want to yeah. take we're, the two. Because yeah. we want to take the two and do our hobby with it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> me, yeah. Me, Men are system skirters. Like we're gonna try yeah. and figure out a way to game the, the game for sure.
0: Yeah. And you know, here's here's one of the other things I've been thinking about, Elias. You know, we focus on how much people should save and getting people started. But I think one of the 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 skills of being a great investor is learning how to balance your cash flow and mastering the art of um, your cash flow management. Like just in general with your your household. What I mean by that is some people are better off for a short period of time saying, hey, I, this is my paycheck. I'm not going to worry about saving anything for three to six months. I'm only going to focus on my cash flow where's my money going being very intentional with how we spend money versus letting it just slip away i'm horrible at just making random purchases you know we went to we went and had lunch the other day well it was actually turned out to be a pretty expensive lunch
1: yeah you were in a good mood i got a nice gift card from you so you did that was a that was an impulse buy
0: but it turned into like my
1: gold star for the week.
0: It turned into a, you know, two hundred dollar lunch meeting. <laughs> yeah. You know, but that's a way like if people aren't saving money, I'm saving money so I can do that. But if people aren't saving money, you gotta start and look at say, okay, well that lunch, did I really need to have that lunch? Or could I have taken that two hundred dollars and put it in my Roth IRA or put it into some kind of an investment? <laughs> and if most people started looking at their cash flow that way, all of a sudden they're gonna free up all of this extra money that they could start investing with and they're really not denting their lifestyle much. They're cutting back on maybe one or two things a week that arguably if I didn't have that lunch with you, we wouldn't have had like the good time, but would have changed my life one way or another. No, no. And it wouldn't change yours one way or another either. Other than, you know, you had to take your wife out for other than I
1: have a, $100 Hundred dollar gift card to a nice restaurant. Now it's go- not really a nice restaurant. It's a bar that has really good food. It's
0: the best wings in town. And you were there yesterday. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I went back. How was the, how I was the, how back. was the burger? Uh, really good. How was
0: the wings? Did you eat the wings again?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, split them. Split a burger and wings with my brother. So yeah, all the it was really good. I mean, so the wings are fried, sauced, and grilled. That's a hard, that's, they're going to be good. They're not going to be bad if you do it that way.
0: No, anytime you like grill it after you sauced it and then you toss it again. Yeah, they're It's excellent. impossible to not be good.
1: Yep, they're excellent. And the, the other thing I'm just say with the cash flow, it, it, you don't necessarily have to have your budget down to the penny, but you do have to know how you're directing your money and it's freeing, right? That's really what it does. It just, it allows you for financial freedom. If you're doing all the right things, then going out to lunch on a Friday doesn't set you back. But if you have $70,000, you know, on your mortgage and 20000 on credit cards and you got a HELOC with fit, or a home equity line of credit with $50,000 on it, you have all this stuff. That's when $200 at launch sets you back because now you can't pay your credit card bill. So you just got to be, you know, you got to be an adult with your money. And sometimes if your cash, you know, I recently I was helping a family where their cash flow is just short. And it has, it's a lot of things they can't control. And some of it is the wage that they make. And you might have to get a second job. Like one person in the family might have to work more to, uh, to accomplish some of the goals, but that's just the
0: reality of the situation. So it's funny. You talk about like how people can't afford just like some small things. And one of the articles I read the other day, it was talking about the one item that Americans can't afford. This common thing that happens all the time. And I'm going to let you, we're going to try to figure this out because I don't know how this could be, but, um, there, there was a survey out there and they just said, Hey, they they surveyed 1400 american car owners and they they said how much could you afford for an out of you know scheduled repair on your car 26% of americans said they could not afford a $500 car repair bill if it broke down another 37% said they couldn't cover a 1000 and more than 58% said they could not cover 3000 for car repairs so here's what i'm trying to figure out People can't afford to fix their car. I mean, $500 and $1,000 can't afford to fix their car, but the average car payment in America is over $700 a month. So does that mean so people buying, are buying brand new cars so they can afford? My question is, are they buying new cars because they think that's less expensive than yeah. making the car repair because they know they can budget the 700 a month better than they can budget... The thousand or fifteen hundred dollars surprise, like, is that what's going on? Because if you can afford a seven hundred dollar car payment, a five hundred dollar car repair should be absolutely nothing.
1: I think that's, to handle. Yeah, I think that's the that's what happens. Is it's easy to convince yourself that well, buying a vehicle's, and you do, you do have to have a reliable vehicle. Um, but you can drive around. You can drive around town just where we live and it doesn't matter what neighborhood you go into. There's nice vehicles in every neighborhood, regardless of the types of houses that are there. So people are, people are not scared to go out and spend money on a car. This
0: is not disparaging at all, but go drive down through a trailer park or a mobile home park. The, those what are the happen? lowest cost homes. Some of those cars that they're driving... More expensive than where they live. Oh, yeah. Probably. I'm telling you, drive through there, you're going to see a new truck, new car. Like, you'd think if you're going through a mobile home park, it's going to be like $2,000 cars. Cars like
1: I drive? Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, but you own a house. (laughs) So. But think about it. Like, is it just that's where they're spending their money? And, you know, maybe it is. And and I'm reading more of this article, but 20% of U.S. vehicle owners said if their car broke down and they couldn't repair it, they could potentially lose their job. So are there certain people that are saying, hey, I have to have this reliable car because this is actually a function of me getting paid and I'll forego where I live to make sure I get paid? Cause otherwise, I can't figure out the rationale why I drive drive through the mobile home park. I'm thinking of one right now. I know someone that lives in there. There's thirty and forty thousand dollar trucks, and they're living in a place that's like twenty five thousand dollars.
1: Oh yeah, maybe maybe that's lifestyle design. It could
0: be lifestyle. It could be like, hey, I want to have a nice car. It could be, but I just feel like. Um, I feel like it's well, backwards. And, and when I saw the numbers, I'm like, man, is this – how can you afford the car payment if you can't fix it? People have to be buying new cars so they don't have to fix them.
1: And we we both know repossessions are trending up. So the the, the average car payment being over 700 that's – most most people can't afford it or else repossessions would not be trending upward if people could actually afford well,
0: that. that goal goes to another, another whole can of worms. You know, we're already seeing a regional banking crisis – Right? These regional banks are under stress. Mm-hmm. Who's the number one lender for vehicle loans? What, so what types of banks? Regional banks and credit unions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You go to the, if you go, if you went and pulled around, and especially like UV um, side by sides, all these side by sides on the, I'm at Living Marion, they're legal now. These are all 30 grand. Everybody has a side by side. They're spending more on a side-by-side than their car. They're all financed. They're all financed through the credit union. What's the first there thing go, people that, aren't going to pay? right there,
1: $30,000 just recreational vehicle.
0: Uh, I have a friend who ordered a brand-new electric Polaris side-by-side.
1: I bet that's fun to drive. Not a
0: four-seater, two-seater. Uh, he hasn't got it yet. He's been waiting two years. Well, in it, I, bet it's, I bet it's fun to drive. They, they keep, well, he, he's hopefully going to find out this month. He said he was going to get in April. Well, it's May. He hasn't got it yet. But point is, this thing is like $50,000. Now, the guy who bought this can afford it with no, I mean, he wrote a check for it. He can afford it. But there's not that many people who can just stroke a check for $30,000 for a Polaris side-by-side. And they're everywhere. So... You know, once again, what's the next shoe to fall? You said there's, you know, repossessions on vehicles. Maybe that puts more stress in the banking system. They've been talking about that for like a year and a half.
1: Maybe there'll be increased repossessions on um, side-by-sides, too, and you can go get one for cheap. Well,
0: that's (laughs) what's going to happen. Everything's cyclical and, you know, in nature. Things have gotten really hard to get. They got really expensive. What's happening now? Things are getting getting a little bit easier to get. Yeah. They're getting a little less expensive. Like used cars are still high, but you're not no longer buying a car and then selling it a year later for what you paid or more than what you paid. Those days are over. Yeah. And I've noticed also, because I watch this side by side market, I really want one. I just won't spend 30000 on one. So. I'm waiting to see what happens with the prices because eventually if everybody bought these things, they can't afford them. They're going to have to sell them or the bank's going to own them.
1: And you, you'll you be ready to buy one.
0: I've been, hey, I've been holding off for like two years. So this is my year. I'm I'm getting one this year, but I'm not buying a $30,000 one.
1: you going to get an electric one or gas? No, I or don't. Does know. It doesn't matter.
0: Uh, I'd love an electric. I don't want to spend the money on electric one. I'm gotcha. gonna get a gas one, yeah. and and it's it kind of goes back to what I want to use it for. I don't want to be out there and have to worry if my battery is gonna be charged. So so the one my buddy bought, you, you can buy one or two battery packages. The one battery package goes like 47 miles. One goes like 101. 47 miles. I could see myself maxing that out. Pretty easy. That's all you get on this. Yeah, on that battery package, I believe. He, 47? Yeah, I think that's what he told me. Hmm. Uh, don't quote me exactly, but it wasn't very many miles. So I'm opting for gas, but I'm really going to get it to plow snow. To plow snow where? In my house. <laughs> what? Yeah.
1: You're not just, don't you have a snow removal service now? I
0: do, but here's the deal. They tear my yard up. No, I mean, they do a great job because they show up and do it, but they tear my yard up with the truck. They leave rust stains in the driveway from the blade, oh. and then they load it with salt. So then the salt's on your driveway and pits out the, the concrete. I always used to plow my own snow. I have no problem doing that actually, but my my youngest daughter or my oldest daughter wanted to jump on the ATV when I did it. I'm like, well, this really isn't safe anymore. So then it became an issue. I've got kids running around while I'm whipping around an ATV. I get the side by side, they can just jump in the cab with me and we can and sit there and together. There you go. Yeah. So there, there's That's some reason nice why. Nice
1: family, fun family activity.
0: Elias, the other night I was on the radio with Doug and we were talking about, you know, how old things become new again. You know, like how if you keep a suit for 30 years, it'll probably be popular again.
1: A suit? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, you know, there's a time period that oh. it's no good and all, then it's like all back.
1: All the cut. So I've noticed. All the college kids, they dress like it's a mix between the 70s and the 90s now. So all that stuff is, like, cool again.
0: Well, guess what else is back? What? The 60-40 portfolio. 18 months ago, it was dead, and it's back. And it's back to vengeance. And, you know, we talked about when people said it was dead, well, why was it dead? It was dead last year because it had the worst year ever on record for a 60-40 portfolio because the bond market went down at its worst year, stock market went down as well. But now people that are deploying new capital into this 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, things kind of look pretty good. All of a sudden you're getting three to 5% on the bond yields, you're buying equities that are 15-ish percent, still off the all-time highs, like it could be a pretty nice time for a 60-40 portfolio. And I had a conversation with a client Yesterday, and they've been clients of ours for 10 years, and they had they, they sold the property, so they got a big chunk of money. And they said, well, you know, what do you think we should do to invest this? I said, well, what's kind of cool now, just based upon the, the the framework that's out there, we can get a lot more yield and dividend income than we could a year and a half ago. You know, if you think about a 50-50 or a 60-40 portfolio, all of a sudden 40% of your portfolio – you can go get 4 to 5% return on it. That's pretty good right out of the gate. So I, I think that the 60-40 portfolio is coming back and people are going to feel good about it where they can go get a nice long-term return on it again.
1: Right, and the, you know, the, the outlook for, and certainly if you have a long-term, a long-time horizon and a long-term perspective, I mean, the outlook for that portfolio is, it's good right now. Well, And I mean, even if you're, And I've talked with some people, like, okay, if you want to, for new contributions, I mean, you should be buying a diversified portfolio, but, like, I feel like everyone's almost bullish on the bond market. Like, if you're a more conservative investor, why not deploy new money into bonds? They've been down in value. The yields are getting better. I mean, it's a good buying opportunity.
0: Well, the last 35 years, this is from Wall Street Journal, the 60-40 portfolio produced average returns of 9.3% over 35 years.
1: And so, so that's really the, to me, that's kind of the beauty of that for people that like investing that way, that long-term 9% return. And then what was the, like the fluctuations along the way that people buy that portfolio because they're risk tolerance, well, right? So it facilitated a couple things for them, like a smoother ride and they got nice returns.
0: Here's why it works. Because typically those two asset class returns work opposite of each other, meaning if the stock market's down, typically the bond prices will be up, right? People are fleeing to, fleeing to quality. Yeah. Well, if you think about human behavior, and we're back to this, if they just looked last year at the bond market, they'd be like, I don't want to buy bonds because they were down 14%. So if they put any type of recency bias into this equation, they would be like, I don't want to buy bonds. Even over 35 years, this portfolio averaged 9.3%, and that's going through 2022. So people should just give up on the recency bias, really start thinking about, you know, what are the goals of my financial plan, which is why we use an actual planning software to figure out what, what asset mix is gonna work best for most people. But I think the sixty forty portfolio, if you're a do-it-yourselfer and, you know, you, you have more of a conservative or moderate investment risk, it it's kind of back and there's probably some opportunity to get decent returns on this type of portfolio.
1: Yep. The old the the old is new again. So what twenty four months ago you weren't supposed to be allocated this way and now it's uh you know the outlook has changed. But that's investing, right? That's things are cyclical and but to me this is like goes there's just certain tried and true things that that consistently will work over time
0: so Elias, that we were out at when we went for lunch the other day we had this talk and I want you to think about um, and this is kind of about just spending money in general but we bought we had lunch and then I got a gift card too and I said hey do I tip on the gift card and then I said, well, do I have to tip on the, you know, I used a debit card. So it gave me a, I had to pay an extra fee to use the debit card. I was like, do I tip on that? And you go, no. And I was talking to somebody just the other day. I'm like, tipping in this country has gotten completely out of control. I mean, I go get a coffee and they want a tip. Then someone grabs something from behind the counter and puts it on the counter and it says, do you want to leave a tip? Like, Tip is for like exceptional service. It's not supposed to be to do your job,
1: right? Well, like at a full service restaurant, it is part of the wage. But like a coffee
0: shop, why and- is it why is it part of the wage? Why? And I never worked in the restaurant industry, but why don't the restaurant owners just pay a real wage? And then the tip is for excellent service.
1: So that that's a good question. I don't know how that started, but the actual minimum wage for Uh, service workers was lower than regular minimum wage. So I think when I, so I waited tables in college, I believe my hourly wage was like $4 and 35 cents because you're expected. And a tip is based on your total sales, really. When you look at your tickets, like, so, you know, if you get, if you can average 20% tip, um, that's really how you make your money. So I don't actually know how that started, but I know that's the thought of most restaurants is it's part of the wage.
0: Can't, that can't the, the restaurant owner are just can't they just increase the prices twenty percent and be like there are tipping is only allowed here for exceptional service. Like tipping's not expected. We pay our employees a living wage. We don't pay them four bucks and make them get tips. Because if you think about it, that really stinks for that person. Like, what if nobody comes in? It's not their fault if the owner of the place can't drive business. But they're getting penalized. They don't get any tips.
1: Correct. And I I don't I can't name them. I can. I cannot name them off the top of my head. I do believe there are successful restaurant organizations that they charge more to make and pay better wage. And I actually think it's probably a more profitable way to run a restaurant because like everyone's. Typically in a restaurant, you'll have like some super servers, people that are really good at it. Well, they're they're the ones making all the tip money. But I've at least heard or talked to people about when it's structured that way where you don't have to tip because you're just paying it as part of your bill, that kind of the total level of um, service and experience for the customers is better. Um, so I think there's places that do it. Here's what I don't like right now that happens is – the whole, uh, like, the handheld computers and then the iPads that they flip around when you're signing out. And it just, like...
0: 15, 18, 20, 25, well, or right. zero.
1: So, like, the pizza place I go to, which I'd never Roscoe's. dine... Roscoe's? Yes. I, I love I d- Roscoe's. I don't I don't dine in. And I, I do leave... I give them a cash tip every time. It's a family-owned place. The workers are exceptional in there. Like, they have the best... I don't know where they find these high school kids, but they have the best workers. They're all nice. They're all doing their job. But the one thing I don't like is after I pay, they just flip around the screen and I don't leave tips on the the debit card. I always leave cash for a tip. I got to push a button to say no tip, which makes me feel like a jerk, even though I know I'm leaving a tip, right? Like no tip and then sign where and they, the, they give you the suggested ones in there. And I actually like that they do this, but they don't suggest any lower than 20%. And I've noticed more places are doing that. Instead of like 15, 20, 25, it's 20,
0: 25, 30. 30? Wait, <laughs> time out.
1: What? Dude, that's Come why on. I'm like, yeah. That's... Once
0: again, exactly what I'm saying. This has got completely out of control.
1: Right. And if I'm picking up, like for me, if I'm picking up a delivery or uh, not a delivery, I'm picking up to go. I'll tip, but I'm not gonna tip. Like I sat there and ate at the restaurant, and you brought me drinks, and you brought me my food. Yeah, because
0: really, what you're tipping is you're tipping the cook for cooking your food. But yeah, that's kind of his job. Yeah,
1: I'm just a nice guy, so I give him. You know, I'll give him like five bucks cash. Yeah, during COVID, I'm in a real good mood. Maybe ten, but
0: during COVID, I was tipping every time I did carry out, just trying to keep those places alive. But I don't know if I really want to tip if I'm. You know, if I go to Chick-fil-A, why am I leaving you a tip?
1: No, I'm not. So I had this thought the food. other day, That's though. That's not going to happen.
0: I think some of this is not driven by the owners of the business or the organizations. It's just driven by technology. Like, so let's just use like a payment app that a lot of places use. Well, they just want to have one. The way for that company to be profitable is have one standardized screen that every vendor uses. Versus a vendor saying, oh, I don't want to have a tip option on here. They just, you know, like, what is it, Square? Is that the one that the people have the slider in their phone? Or I think the, so. I, I just think maybe it's the technology in general that does that, where when you just print a receipt, I don't know, it, it has to be something to do with the POS system, or everybody just wants to get tipped. I want to get tipped.
1: Yeah. So I here's, mean, do we
0: get to put a line item that suggested tip? For services for the year at the end of the year?
1: For our company?
0: we put a thirty yeah, percent suggested? We, we should. Tip. Yeah, I'm Yeah, we should.
1: But I mean, uh, that's so what
0: you that's what's so crazy about it. Like we're service workers. I'm not asking for a tip. I think it's ridiculous. But like there's service workers out there, not in the restaurant industry. They want a tip for everything. And they don't do anything.
1: Yeah. So when I was uh when, when I was a bartender um, so in college, I waited tables, bartended, but bartending. So here was my move. I would always take um, like three to five twenties, just whatever I had in my wallet. But I always made, if I needed change, I'd make it from the register. So, and then as I would get tips in my tip jar, when I was behind the bar, I would cash those out for bigger bills from the cash register. So like, if you looked at my tip jar, you could always see like $20 bills. Cause I felt like people are going to think, oh, people are tipping big here. I should tip big here too. So that was one of my little little scams I ran as a bartender. It's not really a scam, but I felt like it worked.
0: Nice. Well, with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you guys have any questions you want us to answer on the show, you can go to btwelfthshow.com. Let us know. Uh, we look forward to everybody tuning in next time.